Gerontological Society of America, Meaningful Lives as We Age. Well, hello, my name is Jess Bibbo, and I'm a research scientist at the Benjamin Rose Institute on Aging in Cleveland, Ohio. And today I have the pleasure, well, I suppose every day I have the pleasure of being the convener of the GSA HAI Interest Group, and that's Human-Animal Interaction. And I'm joined today by Ashley Teagan, a member of our interest group and also a recent research fellow at the Institute for Human-Animal Connection. Hi, Ashley. Hey, Jess. I'm looking forward to talking about our shared interest in human-animal interaction and gerontology today. After completing the two-year research fellowship at the University of Denver's Institute for Human-Animal Connection, I've become very aware of the need for increased collaborations among these fields. So I'm really excited for our first conversation about how the gerontological field actually played a role in establishing the field of anthrozoology, or in other words, human-animal interaction. I could talk about it all day, but we'll keep it to half an hour. And so right now, we're going to talk to different members of our group who are doing really interesting work and have very different work from all over the world. That's right. We'll have folks from the Netherlands, Japan, and Norway joining our conversation a little bit later. But first, we're going to speak with Dr. Nancy Gee from the United States, who has a unique role in bridging the gerontological and human-animal interaction fields together. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Hello, Nancy. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Would you mind introducing yourself a little bit more and telling us what you do? Uh, absolutely. So I'm Nancy G. I'm a professor of psychiatry. I'm the director of the Center for Human-Animal Interaction. Uh, I'm also the Bill Balaban Chair in Human-Animal Interaction, and that's at Virginia Commonwealth University in the School of Medicine. The center, we call it CHI, so the Center for Human-Animal Interaction, has been in existence for about 22 years. Our mission is threefold. Uh, we do research, teaching, and clinical service. We have an amazing Dogs on Call program that's about 60-plus Dogs on Call teams at the moment. We've been as high as 100, and they visit throughout the VCU health uh, system, going into patient rooms and meeting with patients and family and staff and so on. And so I'm, I'm super proud of that program and really delighted to be here. Well, we are delighted to have you. And I know that on top of everything that you're doing at VCU, you're also the current president of ISAS, the International Society for Anthrozoology, the professional research organization of human-animal interaction. Could you tell us more about the organization and how the topic is of aging is being represented? Yeah, absolutely. So, so ISAS, as you mentioned, is a professional organization of researchers. It serves about 300 members representing nearly 30 countries. Uh, membership includes researchers, students, affiliates, all of whom are interested in studying the human-animal bond. The, the organization itself embraces and, and celebrates diversity in all forms, which I'm very proud of, both human and animal. Um, the topic of aging is represented among the topics. Uh, you'll see that, for example, at the conference, in fact, just June, I went to Edinburgh and presented the results of a randomized control trial that we conducted on older adults who were hospitalized, who were randomly assigned to receive either a therapy dog intervention or a handler only, which we called a conversational control intervention or treatment as usual. Um, the results are very exciting and it was really a, a wonderful opportunity to present those at ISATS. Dr. G, I'm curious, in thinking about a different type of human-animal interaction bond or pet ownership, have you seen a way in how people are thinking about aging and pets changing over time? Yeah, absolutely. I think 
now more than ever, people are really starting to recognize the importance of pets in the lives of older adults, not just providing companion pets, that's, that's pretty obvious, but they also help older adults to connect with other people by serving mm-hmm. as social lubricants. In other words, they serve as a topic of conversation that really transcends politics, religion, and other topics that can be quite divisive. Pets also provide a raison d'etre, right? A reason for living. They provide structure and mm-hmm. repeat to the lives of older adults because those older adults need to feed and care for the animal, and that builds that structure into their lives. Importantly, I think people are really starting to see the value in animal visitation programs for older adults. And these are individuals who either can't support a pet, perhaps they don't have time, or or they have limitations that don't allow them to have a pet, or they just Mm -hmm. don't want the ongoing responsibility of pet ownership, and it is a big responsibility. But research on these these brief animal interactions is really starting to show some some favorable short-term outcomes outcomes like reductions in depression or loneliness or anxiety and improvements in mood and activities of daily living, just just to name a few examples. Wow, that's really interesting. And you brought up research, which was something else I wanted to talk about and how you've seen that change over time. And also any methods or theories that you're interested in or would like to explore. Yeah, you know, I just wrote a chapter for Aubrey Fine's latest book on animal-assisted therapy. And in that chapter, I did a Google Scholar search where I looked at research publications in the field. And the the publication rate has grown exponentially over the most recent decades. It's really interesting to see. The field has just absolutely changed and grown since it's beginning really kind of in the early 60s. Kind of if you go back to Boris Levinson and his dog, Jingles, who he involved in his therapeutic practice, he actually pointed out that that animals can serve as an icebreaker or a social lubricant to really aid in psychotherapy. In fact, he wrote about that in his in 1969 in his pet-oriented child psychotherapy. Early observations in the field were anecdotal. They lacked control conditions. They used small sample sizes, but they really drew attention to the possibility that animals might provide health benefits to people. And then along about 1980, Erica Friedman conducted a seminal study that really, I think, changed the shape of the field. Um, her study was on the one-year survival rate among the those individuals who had had a heart attack. She collected data on a number of outcomes, but she asked one simple question. Do you own a pet? And if so, what kind of pet do you own? She found that pet owners were more likely to be alive one year later than non-pet owners. Well, this is huge. This was enormously impactful. This was true even when the severity of disease and dog ownership were factored out. The study is important for a number of reasons, but not least of which is it highlighted the need to consider pet ownership, ownership as a a determinant of human health. It was really a a call to action that more research is needed. Now, since that time, the field has just absolutely blossomed. Mars Pet Care and the National Institutes of Health formed a public-private partnership and funded a large amount of research. Millions of dollars of research went into the field. And they also backed things like adding questions to population surveys, like the Health Retirement Survey, the Avon Longitudinal Survey of Parents and Children, which is over in the UK, the Baltimore Longitudinal Study on Aging. And this funding that got pumped into the field really increased the number of randomized control trials, large sample size work started happening, and that work included more appropriate controls and longitudinal follow-up. We still need more of this, but the field is absolutely heading in the right direction. Now, kind of coming back to your question about gerontological methods, 
I think that BLSA study, the Baltimore Longitudinal Study on Aging, is a really good example of this kind of work. You get those questions into these really big studies that have lots of really great methodologies, and now we can start teasing apart the impact of pet ownership on a variety of things. In fact, Erica Friedman and I just published two papers. One was on physical health decline, and what we point out in this paper, and that's based on the BLSA data, is that older adults who own a pet have less physical decline as they age relative to those who do not. And recently, this one was just accepted for publication, just came out. The same is true for cognition. So pet owners have less decline, older adult pet owners have less decline compared to their age mates who don't own a pet. Also, I want to point out that the field is really now starting to include more discussion of theory. This has been something that the field has been criticized for not including. And so now we're really moving in the right direction. And in fact, I wrote a paper describing a dynamic version of the biopsychosocial model and how it can be applied to the field. And it's being very well received. A lot of people are citing this paper. And I think the model itself, which I did not create, but I just applied it to HAI, the model itself is amazing. And I think it can really help guide research. And, and I'll stop talking to let you all get a word in edgewise. No problem. I also wanted to say, and I'm really glad you brought up Erica Friedman's name, because as you know, her work has definitely shaped my work. And she's also been really supportive member of this interest group. And I'm always happy to see her face every year when we get to see each other face to face now at our annual meetings. So, you know, the interest group itself is fairly young especially compared to some other groups in the GSA. And I remember how excited I was when I learned that it was going to start because this was going to be bridging the two things that are my passions. And you brought up a little bit about some of the funding that was involved in getting the human-animal interaction into different long-term studies. But I was wondering if you could talk about how this interest group really came about. Yeah, so the the impetus for starting the HAI interest group came while I was working at the Waltham Pet Care Science Institute in England. And this is a subsidiary of Mars Pet Care. And Mars Pet Care and Waltham really saw the the changing population in terms of demographics. The population is aging rapidly. And they recognized the need to divert more attention to older adults. And so we had talks with the GSA about what we could do. How can we shift more attention to older adults? And so we did a couple of things. One thing is that we had a workshop uh, where we brought we brought together HAI researchers together with researchers in gerontology. And basically, we looked at things like James Serple presented on the state of HAI research. Uh, Laura Sands presented on the state of science in aging research. Marie-Jose Enders uh, Sleggers from the Netherlands talked about HAI and aging. Leila Esposito from the National Institute of Health, specifically the NICHD, reported findings from that public-private partnership. Uh, and then we had Michelle Chardell report on the epidemiological research in older adults. Erica Friedman uh, came to the workshop, talked about methods in HAI research and aging. And then we got together and talked about what next step should we take. So Waltham funded research on HAI and aging, and they also funded additional workshops. GSA held a symposium on HAI and aging, and they helped us to establish the very first interest group. And I was one of the conveners along with Sandra McCune, who was also at Mars Waltham at the time. So we're the ones who got this group started sort of all those years ago. Wow. Thank you so much for your hard work, Dr. G. But also, you know, for conducting this research that really did lead to this special interest group's inception. Thank you. 
Yes, it has been delightful to talk to you. And so next, Ashley and I are going to be talking to some really amazing early and not necessarily early career researchers who are part of this group. But I was going to take the liberty and ask if you have anything else you'd like to say. And also, you know, any words of advice for us folks who are making a career of aging and human-animal interaction? Yeah, you know, the field is so exciting. It's so wide open. It's just a wonderful time to be involved in research in this area right now. There's just so many directions that we can go. We have so much to learn. But if, in terms of advice, I would suggest that researchers stand on the shoulders of those who came before you. Build on their work. Take the next steps. And think about, read about the steps that were called for all those years ago. And, you know, we hear this common refrain that more research is needed. Do that high-quality theory-driven research that implements appropriate controls and includes longitudinal follow-ups so that we can stop the refrain that more high-quality research is needed and now change our refrain to a focus on individual questions that remain unanswered. That's the case with all established scientific disciplines. Let's start focusing on big questions and start finding the answers to those big questions. Well, great. Thank you so much, Nancy. And I, for one, want to thank you for your very broad shoulders. It's been a delight. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, I am really excited for this next conversation. I know that ANGSA stands for America, but there's a very large international representation and membership and conference attendees. And that's also true for our human animal interest group. And I'm so glad to have the opportunity to talk with some of them now. And we don't just have diversity in countries represented, there's also types of animals being investigated. We often think of interaction with animals and dogs and cats, but people live with a lot of different types of animals. And fish are found in a lot of homes, but are often overlooked in these studies. And I'm really glad we have an opportunity to talk with Dr. Takase from Tokyo, Japan about her work on ornamental fish. So welcome Dr. Takase, it's a pleasure to have you here. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, thank you so much for having me here today. Uh, my name is Maita Kase, and I'm a researcher from Institute of Gerontology in the University of Tokyo. And my primary research topic is focused on social participation of older adults. And in the Institute, I'm mainly involved in operating a community space, which is based in Chiba Prefecture, Japan. Okay. Great, thank you. Could you tell us a bit more about keeping fish and what a botulinum is, if that fits yes. correctly? Yes, it's called botulinum, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this research was conducted as one of my interventions at the community space. And as you mentioned earlier, we have so many animals from dogs, cats, but I decided to focus on ornamental fish because first of all, it's very much easier to take care of the fish compared to you know, dogs where you have to go out and walk them every day. And biologically speaking, mammals live to maybe 10 to 15 years. And many older adults are sometimes reluctant to welcome animals, um, dogs and cats into their lives because they think that the pets will outlive the owner. So the fish was chosen to begin with. And so the bottle yum is, so we have the word aquarium, right? So yeah, it's an aquarium. that word I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's aquarium made from a glass bottle. So that is oh. why it's a bottle yum. <laughs> 
Okay. Yeah. So the usual fish breeding system has like aeration system for oxygen and filtration system to keep the water clean. But botulinum is very simple. And it does not require any of the equipments. And it could culture up to one small ornamental fish, one water snail for cleaning, and then one um, water plant for oxygen. So it's really like a small ecosystem. That's really yeah. interesting. And I think paired with that and some of the really real concerns you mentioned for older adults and having pets, that seems like a great alternative. Yeah, it's... um So... Current older adults in Japan, in their younger years, they many of them have the experience of owning really huge aquarium tanks. So many are um, familiar with uh, keeping a fish to begin with. And over the years, you know, they decided to give up the tank. But then it was reintroduced into the lives around age, you know, after 65 years old as an intervention. Oh, interesting. And so I know you have a paper that's written on this and the effects of botulinum, a bottle type aquarium ownership on community dwelling older adults. And it was published in Innovations on Aging, the GSA's open access journal. So I'd like to hear more about the study and how did you recruit people? How long did they keep the fish or the botulinums? Okay, so this botulinum workshop was hosted at the community space as one of the interventions towards older adults who's living in large housing complex in one of the areas of Japan. And the community space initially hosted many types of, you know, hobby events, but we were searching for a method which has a long lasting effect on older adults because, you know, you join an event, you have a conversation, you have a good time, but you go home and you're alone again because many of the older adults in the region live by themselves. So we thought that by conducting a botulinum workshop, having older adults bring home a fish could have, you know, longer effect and have a beneficial effect on their daily lives. So the recruitment was mainly towards older adults who usually came to community space. But um, as one of the roles of the space, uh, we did not allow primary registration. So it was hosted on a day and we asked other adults to come and the faster you got to the place, you got to you know, participate in the workshop. Yeah. And after building the botulinum, other adults got to take the fish home. And after one month, a semi-structured interview was conducted to assess the effect of fish ownership on their daily lives. Great. And so, so what did you find? What were your results? So we initially expected, you know, animal to human interaction in terms of, you know, older adults maybe greeting the fish, saying, you know, good morning or good night. And we also expected some kind of a sense of a role as a pet owner. And that was, of course, observed, but we did not really expect to see facilitation in human to human interaction. So uh, this place when the intervention was conducted at is a little bit far from the station. So mm. older adults with um, weaker, you know, walking function, it's difficult for them to go buy products. 
And sometimes, you know, the water plant will die and people need to get new plant, but it was difficult for some people. So one person went ahead and got like 10 plants and brought it home and gave the plants out to the other participants. So that oh. was one new way of communication that was observed, you know, among the residents of the housing complex. So you really created a small community of people living with bodiliums that then could interact with each other and mm -hmm. in some ways look out for each other and socially interact with one another. Yeah, the looking out part was also, we have a really interesting episode about the looking out part. Oh, <laughs> I apologize for the dog. <laughs> it's a dog, we allow that here. <laughs> so I mentioned earlier that many other adults live alone at their homes. So the residents, you know, kind of look after each other on a daily basis. But um, when emergency happen at midnight or early morning, people lose track, you know, of where they went. For example, if they're carried by ambulance during the midnight, they don't know where the others went to. And we have one case where the owner of Botelium contacted one of her friends when she had to be transported to the emergency room. And she called her because she wanted her to look after the fish. So oh. her friend felt, you know, the situation. She was having like really he heavy hemorrhage and she found out that she was going to the hospital by, you know, the fish. <laughs> so we thought that it was, you know, for that part, they initially had friendship, but the, mm. you know, the fish kind of, you know, pushed more depth into their communication ah. in terms of to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we see a lot in the literature is that pets can be a way to not only facilitate new friendships, but also be a way to bring people together. Yeah, definitely it was. So this time it was conducted in a housing complex. So I think similar results could be seen also in places like nursing homes or apartments where people kind of, you know, already have their connection and then, you know, can share parts of their lives with other residents or other friends. Well, this is really interesting work. Thank you so much, Dr. Takase. I really appreciate you taking the time and also just the great and important work that you're doing because we do we hear so much about dogs facilitating friendly interactions with people but it's so fascinating to hear about how caring for your fish can in some ways have similar results so i know you mentioned maybe doing it in in different apartments but do you have anything planned necessarily for a next step yeah so we really have uh one interesting research that is currently going on but it was halted by the covid pandemic ah yeah, so, but still, I would, like, I would like to share a little bit. So in that research, we are using baby sea turtles, actually. Yes, it's also a marine animal. But um, so baby sea, sea turtles are um, listed in endangered species list. So as one of their, you know, protective measures, we want the baby sea, tur sea turtles to grow a little bit before releasing into the ocean. So they have better survival probability. And uh, we have a system in Japan called the joint breeding system, which uh, cultures baby sea turtle for half a year to one year and you know have them grow a little bit in size and then releasing it to the sea 
and we're hoping that you know they will come back again alive as an adult. And we are actually doing that in a nursing home right now. So I think the difference is between the fish ownership and sea turtle ownership is that older adults could feel their sense of role in a society mm. by participating in nature conservation. That's yeah. so interesting because <laughs> normally in this kind of research, we don't do work with animals that aren't considered companion animals for a number of, of different ethical reasons. But this seems, this makes sense. And this seems that, yeah, it has that, what we always hope with the human-animal bond, that it benefits both the human and the other animal. So that's really interesting. I'm really looking forward to hearing those results. Hopefully you. you can present them at GSA. Yeah, hopefully. So the pandemic, you know, eventually I think the nursing home staff will let the researchers in. Mm. And yeah, we will get the results then, I think. So maybe next year or next next year at GSA. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Well, now we're going to travel again and talk about a very different form of human-animal interaction. So unfortunately, Ashley can't join us, but we are going to be talking with two interest group members from Northern Europe, Dr. Engeborg Pedersen from Norway and Katharina Rostiris, a PhD student from the Netherlands. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Thank you for the invitation. I am Ingeborg and work as an associate professor at the Department of Public Health Science at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences. Since the start of my PhD for more than 15 years ago, my research focus has been on human-animal interaction and green care farms. And it's mostly the target group for elderly people. And hi, Jess. I am Katharina Rostaius, a PhD student at the University of Maastricht in the Netherlands. And my PhD focuses entirely on green care farms too, and starting from the way of functioning up until the effects on residents and the families and on staff members. And thanks for inviting us. Well, I'm very happy to talk to both of you and learn about green care farms. That's something we haven't heard a lot about over in the States. Could you explain what they are a bit? Yeah, you know, in Norway, it's generally very small farms compared to in the U.S. So it's small family-owned uh, farms and that also have some commercial agriculture, but they use the resources at the farm in the care service. So it, this is in contrast to the regular daycare, which often is provided in connection to healthcare facilities like nursing homes. So they use the whole farm, the farm animals, the garden, farm buildings, and the outdoor areas in the service. It could be typical activities like walking in the local area and farm-based activities, such as horticulture activities and feeding and caring for animals. So much of the activity is done in small groups and have also a social element, such as shared meals. So, and the attendees often participate in pre um, preparing it. And it's the farmer that is the service provider, but the municipal health authorities are financing the service are, and are responsible for the quality of care. So this is in Norway and we also, the care service offered is daycare for people with dementia. So how is it in Netherlands? 
Yeah, in the Netherlands, it's very similar, but, and that is very unique here, here are Green Care Farms a real alternative for regular nursing homes. And so it's not only daycare, but it's also possible to live there. And yeah, here also most green care farms come from real farms where the agricultural production was not enough to live off from. And then the farmer thought, well, we have space and sometimes someone in the family worked in care. And yeah, now it became a real business for them. Oh, interesting. So how do people interact with the animals? So and what roles do animals in nature play on green care farms? Yeah, on green care farms, they have a different care vision than in regular care. The actual care is just the base for then having a nice and more importantly, an eventful day. And the nature actually plays a very important role in this because residents can care for the animals or pet them, as Ingeborg already said. So they don't only receive care, but also give care and some, yeah, they do something good and valuable. So they contribute to their communities with their skills. So, yeah, for example, imagine a person with early onset dementia who can't talk anymore, but is physically very fit. This person might be very happy to help clean a stable or work in the vegetable garden. So this person still has skills, although having dementia. And especially when having dementia, people often have chaos in their head and the animals and gardens help them to distract. Yes, we also saw similar results from a large research project we had in Norway called Farm-Based Dementia Care. So we interviewed the attendees uh, while they were at the farm and they described the farm as a place where they could be occupied with activities that provided meaning and made them feel useful. So the farm context with animal and nature provide a lot of opportunities for activities. For example, the attendees could participate in growing potatoes with work tasks like planting, watering, weeding, and then harvesting in the autumn. And uh, what is also very, uh, they use it a lot in the care is that they use products also in the common meals. So they can then cook the potatoes and serve them. And this is what they uh, have a focus on that they they feel very useful that and this when they can provide products also for other people. Oh, I was just going to ask about some of your research and yeah. what you found any differences between green care farms and traditional long-term care. Yeah, we also uh, did the observational study uh, in this large research project. And when we compared with ordinary daycare, they found that the, the attendees were outdoors 40% of the time during day, the day, but at the regular daycare, they were almost not outdoors at all, all only 3% of the day. So the results showed that the attendees of the uh, green care farms also experienced more, more social interaction and more positive mood. And we also did study uh, focusing on physical activity and we also saw that green care farms had more moderate physical activity and also better quality of sleep than the attendees at the regular daycare. So we found a lot of differences and we concluded that green care farms may be a good supplementary service that meet the social and physical activity needs for people with dementia. 
Wow. So this sounds really interesting. And uh, more traditional models could learn a lot from green care farms. I'm sure that there are differences between traditional nursing homes and daycare services in your countries in the U.S. But one thing they may have in common is that it can be difficult to create change in established systems. Have Have you found this in your work in uh, in your respective countries? Uh, yes, uh, that's actually often the case. Many nursing homes want to innovate and uh, yeah, want to build a garden or buy some horses. But um, often in reality, we'll, we don't see residents there. Maybe when a family member comes along and takes them for a walk. So we were wondering why the animals or the nice gardens are often not integrated into daily care. And yeah, we found that a nursing home consists not only of the physical environment, but that there are social norms and organizational constructs as well. So when wanting to innovate, it's not enough to put the horses in the garden, but the doors are still locked. Or when the staff doesn't have time to go there with the residents. So nursing homes have to change their routines and the way daily life is organized and the way they look at residents and yeah, ultimately their whole vision on care. Yes, that's true. But uh, we have also from the green care farms, uh, uh, take take-home message. We think that animals offer activity, enjoyment, attention, and is a source of distraction from the illness. And this kind of care services could be suitable for everyone, not only for people with from the countryside or connected to farming. But we don't want all nursing homes to become green care farms because it doesn't fit every person. We must look at the individual and the preferences of each person. And animals are uh, one way to activate people and give them purpose, but there are also many other possibilities which regular long-term care can use if the legislation doesn't permit animals, for example. So keep on exploring. That's a great point because, you know, being engaged and interested is crucial for well-being at all ages for people with and without dementia. So I want to thank both of you so much for sharing your work with us and for being part of the Human-Animal Interaction Interest Group. So thank you again. It was a pleasure. Yes, a pleasure. Thank you. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org. G-E-R-O-N.org.